0: You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer.
1: And my name is Andrea Spencer, sitting in for Paul Steggy. In this podcast miniseries, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us think about these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions.
0: In this episode, we're digging into student activism and student protest, and we begin our conversation right here at Villanova University with Raul Diego Rivera-Hernandez.
2: My name is Raul Diego Rivera-Hernandez, and I am an assistant professor at the Romans Languages and Literature Department here at Villanova University.
1: The scene is Mexico City, 1968. It's October 2nd, 10 days before the start of the 68 Olympic Games. On the Plaza of the Three Cultures, the main section of the Tlatelolco section of the city, students organized a protest. Students
2: organized a meeting in October 2nd of 1968, 10 days before the inaugural Speech uh, for the Olympic Games.
0: The Mexican army was on hand, ready to subdue any disturbance.
2: So the army was there at the student event. They were monitoring what was happening.
1: There were also riot police, known as granaderos.
2: And in front of the square, there's this very important building, known as the Chihuahua building. So if you live in the Chihuahua building, you have like a perfect uh, view to the square. So in this Chihuahua building and in the um, sides of other buildings surrounding the square, there were a group of people from the Battalion Olympia uh, or the Olympia Battalion. The Olympia Battalion was created as part of a special force for the Olympic Games. They located in the main windows facing the square. And in the time that the student activists start their speech, they start shooting to the students at the time that the military and the police were entering the plaza.
0: The next day, the New York Times reported what happened. They wrote, federal troops moved on a rally of 3,000 people in the square of a vast housing project just as night was falling. In an inferno of firing that lasted an hour, the army strafed the area with machine guns mounted on jeeps and tanks. The newspaper reported only 20 people killed, although they increased that number in the days that followed. We now know that government forces massacred many, many more.
2: It became pretty much like a tramp because from the four different sites where you could exit the square, it was completely blocked by the armies.
1: In 1968, the Olympic battalion was not publicly known. It was only in subsequent decades that research and declassified government records unmasked their
2: existence. We knew about the Battalion Olympia many years later. Uh, we didn't know they were the ones who started the provocation against students, but they start shooting the students and people start running desperately. Some people die. Some other people were able to, to escape. There were not only students in the square. There were also family members of the students. Uh, there were also many, many kids who were accompanying their brothers, their sisters. You had also different labor movements. You have the teachers movement there, the railroad movement there. So, It it was an attack against the civil society, it was a state crime against the civil society.
0: The massacre in Mexico City was one of dozens of violent protests in 1968. Student protests turned bloody and often deadly in New York, Paris, Berlin, Rome, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Tokyo, Pakistan and elsewhere around the world. A 1968 CIA report identified, quote, restless youth as a source for this global unrest.
1: Those restless youth demanded changes from their governments, an end to corruption, new political systems, greater voice in political affairs, a stop to the war in Vietnam, and greater personal freedoms. In many places, they were crushed by state violence. Were the student-led revolutions of 68 destined to fail in the face of the era's political realities?
0: We'll answer that question at the end of this episode. But first, let's get to another question. What explains why students were protesting in the first place? If I look at the situation in Europe and France and in West Germany, that's the voice of our very own Paul Steggy Associate Professor of History at Villanova and Faculty Director of the LePage Center. There is, in the second half of the 20th century, a
3: massive expansion of the number of students who are attending universities. And so part of the mobilization for protest also has to do with overcrowded lecture halls and this broadening of the base of students is not just kind of the wealthy elite. There's a much broader set of of, of the population that are now streaming into the universities. Uh, and in part, this is also a byproduct of the, the economic growth, especially in Western Europe during the second half of the 20th century.
1: And even if Mexican students had different concerns than the consumer excesses that outraged French and American students, a different sort of economics played a role in the Mexico City protests. In preparation for the Olympics that year, the Mexican government spent large sums of money remodeling the city, particularly the subway.
2: It was a state project to remodel the city to show the best part of Mexico, in that time was the construction of the subway in Mexico. So that the subway became like the ultimate project of modernization of the country in terms of connecting people from different uh, places so they could have access to the major events of the Olympics.
0: But it was more than simply transportation. The subway and capital projects aimed to show the rest of the world that a developing country was fit to host the Olympics on a global stage.
3: The fact that, that the Olympic Games in Mexico is the first time that the Olympics were being hosted by a so called third world nation, and so that this now becomes a mark of the ways in which in which Mexico had achieved had had moved on to the status of of a modern state, and that that all of these events were supposed to showcase a particular form of of Mexico a particular vision of
2: Mexico. The students were pretty much pointing out that to the state now you're spending too much money on these uh Project. Uh, and, and there are like many other aspects that you should consider. Because the students also were thinking in terms of state as this kind of post-revolutionary state that should be much more aware of, of social realities that are currently going in Mexico in that time, of the promises of the Mexican Revolution, of creating better opportunities not only for the people in specific parts of Mexico City, but for the whole country. So I I think it's important to consider that as students, not against the Olympic Games, but criticizing the way the Mexican government was spending the money.
0: In many ways, October 1968 in Mexico City was a culmination of growing discontent, simmering among the student population and others. But the massacre also marked an inflection point, after which the energy began to be directed in different ways.
1: The New York Times, October 4th, 1968. We have not given up. One student said, I was in that massacre last night, and after that I would never give up. But we need time to organize before we can go to the streets again.
2: October 2nd marks the end of the student council strike. I believe there are like two ways to understand this moment. The students who decided to radicalize and start some political project with the guerrillas urbanas in Mexico, which become very evident in the 1970s. But I also believe that these end of the student movement of the 1968, transforming to something completely different, which I believe it's connected to the human rights movement in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America.
1: There were also unsung heroes of the student movement. Not those in the square, but those who walked the streets, mobilizing and spreading the message. There
2: was this other part of the student movement that never got the historical recognition that they should have. And these were the people that were doing street politics. So the people who were doing street politics were people that were talking to others in different public spots of the city, who were explaining the demands of the student movement in supermarkets, in buses, who were developing other kind of relationships in order to gain the legitimacy of the student movement. So these groups, uh, especially uh, built by women, uh, I, I believe that the, this very important street politics transform and evolve into something that uh, became pretty much like a landmark in Latin America, which is the fight for, for human rights. And, and I can, for example, think about the maternal activism, for example, of mothers of Plaza de Mayo, but also the women in Mexico of the Comité Eureka who are searching their disappeared children.
3: That's really fascinating me to think about the ways in which sort of hidden labor of the student movement, especially by women who were not as visible, become so important in helping to explain the lasting power of the student movement that is about much more than just student politics or university politics. It it is very interesting to think about these particular moments in which state violence becomes a trigger for mobilization, but I think also for the desire to find some sort of other political language to make visible these issues that are somehow beneath the surface.
0: So were these student movements of 68 destined to fail? Or, to put it another way, were they successful? I'm going to use
2: my friend Benjamin Arditi's position. He's a political theorist
0: at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City. When he
2: criticizes, when we discuss student movements in terms of success or failure, because when the student protests are not able to get their demands, we pretty much tend to get into this disenchantment wave and, and and speak about failure. So what I think and what Benjamín Arditi explains is that student movements and any other social movements of different time periods are like these kind of connectors from something else to come. Movements emerge most of the time without a plan, and that's what he says. Uh, the movements don't have a plan. But it's it's enough for the movements to say... Estamos cansados, no? We're tired. We're sick of this specific situation that we're currently living. We are um, in a moment that we have reached the point of enough is enough.
1: In the Mexican context, the spirit of student protest continues. In recent years, there has been a revitalization of student protest in Mexico. During the 2012 presidential election, the PRI candidate, Enrique Peña Nieto, fled the stage in the face of student protesters at the Ibero-American University in Mexico City.
2: And in the moment that he was leaving, there were like massive videos um, of, 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 of Peña Nieto running out of the university. There were like massive protests against him. And, and the students were very much angry at that time. And they did something very impressive, which was a video that they upload in YouTube with 131 testimonies saying their names, the faculty, they studied, and why they were protesting. So this become a viral video, and then the people start kind of adding, if you were the 131, I want to be the 132. So that's when the student movement emerged, the 132, and the most important demand of that time was the democratization of the media, which I believe the student movement of the 1968 developed by doing this street politics that I'm discussing.
0: There is a continuity among these movements. They are not isolated moments of revolutionary impulse, but a continual expression of dissatisfaction and frustration with state power, control, and suppression of freedoms. The spirit of Mexico's 1968 protests is still alive in the student protests of 2012, 2014, and today.
2: I think what the student movement of the 1968, the Yo Soy movement of 2012, the students of Ayotzinapa, who started in 2014 after the uh, enforced disappearance of 43 students from uh, the teacher college of Ayotzinapa. What what these moments of the Mexican history where the students have spoken is connected to the moment of being tired of a political system. In the 1968, it was evident that we were tired of the... PRI, politics of the authoritarian state. Uh, it was very evident that the students wanted to have a different way to participating in politics, not in the ways that the state was promoting, because that was pretty much limited for the elite in the country. The 2012 student movement of Yostro Centro was very evident that it, there was this enormous frustration of the powers that had been established by state authorities and by the media in the country. And the 2014 protest of Ayotzinapa, I believe, is the moment where the Mexican government with the PRI, with Enrique Peña Nieto, was unable to keep... Administrating the horror that was happening in Mexico. And, and I can trace this uh, from the 1968 uh, desire of democratization of the country and now this specific moment.
0: While Mexico in 1968 is a case with which listeners may be less familiar, it offers insights into how political protests, especially among students, emerged in other parts of the world and how those protests have lasting impact even if not in the most obvious ways.
2: In the case of Mexico, it's as important as other countries in, in Latin America. Uh, students are a vital force for democratic societies. Uh, it's important to accompany their, their protests, their demands. And it's important for us as scholars and as teachers also to make uh, important to create an environment to build important discussions in class. I think that's what it's, it's, it's important for us nowadays to discuss contemporary issues with our students and to try to find ways on how to become more engaged with our current political situation.
0: You've been listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary
1: issues. 1968 in Hindsight, produced by the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Villanova University.
0: For more information on the sources used in this episode or any of our previous episodes, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu.
1: Thanks for listening.